Hello, this is Stuff Said with Greg Shegel. I am Greg Shegel. I'm a cartoonist who talks to other cartoonists and people in the world of comics and beyond. Uh, if you're coming back after episode one, welcome back. If this is your first episode, uh, you're only one behind. So you can pause it now, go back, listen to episode one, and then uh, you'll be right where you left off if you paused right now. Uh, this episode is going to be part two of my talk with Chris Giruso of G-Man and Mini Marvels, uh, and we're going to keep talking. But before I keep talking to Chris, I sort of wanted to uh, talk a little bit about this show, sort of give, not the syllabus, because there's no, there's no reading list, I don't know, maybe a mission statement, maybe like the mission statement for the show, and then I'll release it, and then Jay Moore will fire me, and I'll take my goldfish and start... What? This is not... the. Uh, I'll say this. Uh, the mission statement is not to recap Jerry Maguire with me in the role of Jerry Maguire. That's not what this show's about. So Chris has something to do with this story, so it's relevant to the fact that he's the guest. Basically, a while back, years at this point, Chris and I were told, you, you guys should do a podcast. You guys uh, are entertaining. You should do a podcast. An idea that I immediately resisted. Um... Because I was not uh, interested. I'm not a performer. And I didn't think anybody would want to hear Chris and I yammer on for hours at a time or half hours at a time. But I do listen to podcasts and I enjoy talk radio. And as a cartoonist, I listen to them quite a bit when I'm working. And I've listened to a lot of comic podcasts. And uh, while all of them do what they do and some are better than others, and that's not for me to say, I always felt that there was something missing from the comics podcast landscape if you will. And I would talk to the aforementioned Chris and say, uh, you know, they should do a show like this. Or if I did a show, it would be like this. And Chris's response regularly was, well, then why don't you do it? Go ahead. You talk in the talk, walk the walk. And I would go into some explanation of how I don't, I'm not a podcaster. I'm not a, uh, I don't do that. And I don't have the time to do that. I, I, I have ideas. I want to write and draw stories and you create your own stuff and self-publish my, my work. And time goes by, and because I'm doing paying work, and I'm when I finish a, a SpongeBob comic, I don't feel like drawing anymore, so I don't do the self-published job, uh, the creator-owned job, rather. I don't do those things. But I'm still listening to podcasts, and I'm still thinking about what's missing. So, after a while, I guess it just struck me that I, I think I can do this. I think I can do this podcast. I think I know the kind of show I want it to be. And basically, what I'm looking to do is create a, a peer-to-peer type show, if that makes any sense, where I talk to other people that, who do something similar to what I do, and we talk about things like, why are you a cartoonist or a writer or an artist or an inker or a retailer or a comic art collector or a convention organizer or whatever. Um, how did you get to this place in this business? Why do you do it? Do you enjoy it? That sort of thing. And while I'm not necessarily an old man by any uh, actual definition, I've, I've been in this world for a little while and I've gotten to meet a lot of people and I know a lot of, uh, maybe not a lot of people, a good handful of people and I thought, I'll start with them. I will talk to those people that I know who I find interesting 
who I think you, the listener, might find interesting. Or our other peers who might be listening might find interesting. So coming full circle, since he was the person I talked about this with quite a bit, uh, the first person I figured I'd record a conversation with was Chris Giarusso. And uh, the circle is complete. And with that, uh, we're going to go into part two of my talk with Chris Giarusso. When we left off last show, we were talking, Chris and I had been talking about Eric Larson, the influence Eric Larson had had on him professionally and even personally. And we pick up from there, Chris Giarusso having talked about Eric Larson. The old expression, never meet your idols, because they'll always disappoint you. I've heard that. So you know Eric Larson now. Yes. You are friends with Eric Larson. Yes. So you've defied. Yeah, I think the people that say never meet your idols have met their idols and it didn't work out well. And they conclude. <laughs> really? That's your. <laughs> and they conclude that therefore everybody's idol must be an. So now knowing, no, it's, so knowing that that's like the, the legend is like when you had the opportunity to meet Eric Larson, was there any hesitation or was it like. Yeah, let's do this. This guy's amazing. Well, I had a couple of email exchanges with him before I actually met him. Uh, Mike Martz had gotten Chris Iliopoulos to ask Eric to draw me a dragon sketch. So I got it. And then I so then I was like, I got to write to this guy. Say thanks. gentlemen. So I wrote to him. Thanks for the art. He's like, yeah, no problem. You know, and then that was about it. Then Larson for, for a while was doing a bunch of work for Marvel again. And I saw that he was going to be at the Big Apple Comic Con. So I put two and two together, figuring, well, he's doing this work for Marvel. He's probably going to be here Friday. And so I asked Brevoort, is Eric coming into the office? And he's like, yeah, he might, he might be here Friday. That's a spot on Brevoort, by the way. <laughs> so I knew Larson was coming in. And I was like, oh, okay, this would be cool. I'm going to meet this guy. Sure. Face or whatever. And at, at that time, I started drawing like these giant mini Marvel posters. And uh, I did a couple of those. And then other people, oh, can you do one for me? Can you do one for my door? So I was, I was like just in that zone of doing that. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do one for Larson. This would be awesome. I'll do a big, po-, you know. And then I, like, so I'm drawing this big dragon poster. And I'm like, wait a minute. As I'm, as I'm finishing it, I'm like, there's, he's not going to want to carry this around or bring it home or, you know. And I realized this as I was finishing it up. And I was yeah. like, oh, well, whatever. I'll just, I'll show it to him, you know. So he comes into the office and then uh, Smitty introduced us. And I was like, oh, hey, nice to meet you, whatever. And, you know, said a few things back and forth. But he was in the office and they were probably, you know, yeah, so I was like, so, and, and I had a job to do. So sure. I went back out to the bullpen. But uh, Eric had some drawing to do. Mm-hmm. So he ended up just like camping out, like right behind where I was sitting. And he was like drawing some stuff. And then he just wandered over. He started talking to me about production things. How awesome is it to be just like talking shop? This it was like it was cool. Like, it's like we're not even talking about Savage Dragon. Like, we're just talking about making comics. Right. I mean, I, like, I, I knew my place. Like, okay, well, this guy's a big shot, and you know, he doesn't really know me from from much or whatever. But now, yeah, shoes on the other foot. We we are or you are bigger shots. Uh-huh. You think of yourself as a big shot? No, no. So you like if you put yourself in that, like he's just a guy there working. Yeah, yeah. There's another so, guy next to so him he knew, working. He knew here's a guy that was like liked his stuff, was reasonably pleasant to be around. Yeah. So and and he had time to kill, so it was like it was cool to like hang out in the office and, and talk. And then that was that, you know. That was that was me meeting my hero. You yeah, know, I, I kind of actually remember that weekend because I think I met you guys and I 
I probably was making fun of you. No, no, yeah, because you were like, I think that was the first time it established the pattern of you pointing out Eric Larson in public to me. Is that? <laughs> because like everywhere we would go that he was, you'd be like, hey, Chris, there's Eric Larson. <laughs> like no matter what convention we went to or whatever, this might have yeah. been the first time. Like, hey, probably. There, there's Eric Larson eating French fries on the sidewalk. I think that is probably what happened. He was with uh, Eliopoulos. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't like we became friends instantly right. and bonded. He was just, he just wasn't a jerk. Sure. The way, you know, some people say, don't meet your heroes. And right. They, they wind up being jerks. He was a nice guy. You and I are often at conventions together. Yes. Although you, going back to my comedian comparisons, you're like a touring comedian, but as a comic artist. There's a, I can do a the, lot of shows. I can see the parallel there between those things. You're on the road a lot. But a lot for going on the road is like going to conventions is a lot is like six a year or something. I feel like you do more than six. Well, maybe maybe like twelve. Maybe like once a month is is a lot. Yeah, I, I always equated it to like uh, going to a track meet because I, I ran track and field in high okay. school. So it kind of felt like all right, we're you know, especially when I go somewhere with you and Jacob. Yeah, it's like okay, the team's getting together. We're getting ready. Get our gear. Sure. let's go. And it's showtime. You know, minus the track suits. Minus the track suits. No no stretching. Right. No exercise. I stretch sometimes. Any, no exercise of any kind. I do some stretches every now and again. But it is a physical effort to sit all day behind that table and draw or talk or and then, both. And then you're, you're, for the most part, your goal at, at shows is what or has it changed over time? It's, it's changed because, you know, ultimately you want to be a successful cartoonist. That's a vague, that's a vague, well, almost right impossible now, to define. Well, right now I, I'm working on graphic novel series G-Man right. and I have two books so far in that right. series that I can sell. Five years ago I didn't have any books. All right, so five years ago, you're at a show. Is it make money? Or is it get people to know who I am or some combination of the two? It's it's a combination, obviously. Like, people already knew me somewhat from the mini-marvels. So you you go to the show, and you can do sketches. You can get commissioned sketches, make a little bit of money to pay for actually getting out there. Because the expenses of the trip, getting a table at the convention, you know, those are all things you have to consider. Like, is it going to be worthwhile to go? So, But in the course of that, you'll sometimes meet with people. You'll ne- you know you you will you'll network as a sure. result like all these things happen at the same time and you, whether you're aiming to or not you will and people always say oh you got to get out there and network and meet people you got to do that and I've never ever ever <laughs> ever had that in mind as a, as a goal but it but happens happened. it happens unwittingly like sure. even if you try to not do it you'll do it that's how you met Art and Franco yeah yeah that's I wasn't we, at that show but that's, yeah that is how we eventually met they, they sat us right next to each other although I I tried to. Uh, I tried, <laughs> I saw them at another convention, and I went. I wanted to go talk to them, and I couldn't get there because they were too mobbed. So it would be for you, everything sort of coming together in a way, whether it was five years ago or last year, where it was the best experience and what, what put it there, or what would make for what – what's the goal in terms of going to conventions? Is there a point where you'll say, I've reached it, I'm going to do fewer conventions, or I don't even know if I'm asking a, a question Well, I, I'm right now I'm in, I am in the zone of – I've committed to too many. I'm going to too many of these things, sure. and it's detrimental to my work output because now all my creative energy is a lot of it has been redirected into going to the shows, and then I come home and it's exhausting, and you got to recuperate, and I'm not actually getting as much new work done as I would like to. It's, it's right. kind of inhibiting my ability to do that, and so pretty soon that'll have me in a, in a place where I'll go to a convention and I don't have anything new to show. So You're touring with the same set, the ex- same 45 Exactly. Set. So now these people have already seen this or bought this if they're interested and it's, that's no longer as lucrative or 
worthwhile as it was. So I'm trying to back off of that somewhat. What's the other parts? What are the other five parts of this question? I think you asked like if like what's is there any standout of like a perfect convention or things coming together? And I always think of like I went, I went to Wizard World Chicago one year and I didn't earn much money. Like I didn't pay, like I I came out the net negative, but I sat next to Bob Stevenson, who was a super interesting guy, and I sat next to Jason Howard who is uh, also super interesting and now famous for his collaborative efforts with Robert Kirkman on The Astounding Wolfman and the, the new Super Dinosaur. Jason turned me on to these, like, different – just different pens to use to do stuff. Yeah, Jason's with. a guy that I don't think people know half of what he's capable of doing. Yeah, and he, he, turned me, he turned me on to these pens, and he turned me on to some, like, vectorization software that I wound up using to make Flash cartoons with that I, I probably never would have gotten to that point if – if not for him, and just these cheap brush pen markers that right. I used at conventions. The ones you get at Michael's. The ones I get at Michael's, the Marvel LaPlumes, yes. he turned me on to. And they were, like, much better to sketch with, to do nice sketches with than, like, a Sharpie. Just the act of constantly doing sketches for people with those brush pens, I think, has improved my art overall because it behaved more like a brush, and I got better with the real brush when I would uh, make my comics back at home. Bob Stevenson, he was telling me how he was doing a webcomic and he wasn't even using paper because I think he said he had been uh, traveling abroad for like a year or so with his wife. So all he had was his laptop and, he, and a tablet. And he would just draw right on – right. he said he used Flash to draw. And he would, he would draw it right in the computer, upload it, and there you go. And that really seemed like a pretty cool thing to do, just so portable. I just like the idea of like – because you already, as an artist, you're like, you don't have to carry that much around with you from place to place if you right. are. But he just had it down to like like a laptop, like a backpack, and he could publish to the internet. I can't imagine being able to actually do it myself, but it just got the wheels turning. Like, well, what what can you do? But yeah, when we were at Franco's and we started feeling with that Cintiq, I was like, this is completely uncomfortable right now. Right. But in six months, with constant practice... I could I could work on one of these. I remember uh, Michael Golden was telling me he got a like one of the early Wacom tablets. Yeah, like it was like this giant big monster thing. But you know he he's a guy that you know likes to explore different tools and stuff. He's not going to turn anything down. Like, sure. Use every tool that's in front of him and see how it works. So he said he he got to the point where he felt like the drawing with the on the Wacom was no different than drawing on paper. Is how he phrased it. Right. So he was definitely into it. But he said that he, uh, when he first started using it, he didn't have any room on his desk or in, in, his, in his work area except for somewhere that was behind him off to the side from his chair. So he's, he had his body, like, pivoted backwards and his head oh, so he had, towards like, one the hand on the, That's insane. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's how he learned how to do it. And then I asked him, <laughs> did, you, you know, did you ever eventually clear off your desk and move it in front of you? And he said it was, like, really hard. Yeah, once you get yeah, it, because like once he's like, it was, he found it very difficult to draw with it right in his lap. On on the spectrum of convention folks, and we love convention folks. Yeah, yeah. Like what's, like what's the worst? You know what? I guess the unsolicited advice. <laughs> <laughs> like you should go for a cartoon. Like yeah, you classic. should. Do that. You know what you should do? You should go do this. Yeah. You should do this. You should do this. <laughs> and. That's not to say that there aren't people out there who are capable of giving me good, solid advice. Yeah. But those are usually people that have some experience doing the same thing that I'm doing. But, you know, you always get the people that think they know how it all works and, and they have no clue. That. That's a great one. The, the person with no ability whose, like, vision of their capability does not match their actual ability. And they don't want advice. They want a job. Like, I think of that guy. Oh, right, right. Or the person with the ridiculous 
sketch request. Like that you're just like, no, I'm not – whatever it is, whether it's crude yeah, and well, disgusting I think the or, ridiculous sketch requests are kind of funny because like once you realize that you're in control of the situation, yes. like you don't have to do a sketch for somebody if you don't want. And if it's, it's going to seem impossible, you could just say, no, I, yeah. what you're asking for is not something I'm capable of yeah, delivering yeah. and just turn it down. The people that want the advice, you know, some of them are super awesome. Some of them you know, are. You know, you'll you'll say things and they'll listen and they'll like, oh, talk wow. about the delusional like, ones. Though. But then there's yeah, there's yeah. and if they hang, if they hang around forever and start <laughs> arguing with you, yeah, I'm like well look, man, <laughs> you don't have to like. I can't <laughs> hire you anyway. Yeah, um, I'm always careful to say that I can't yeah. ever. You know, I'm not in a position to really help anybody. I'm I'm pretty much in the same boat most of the time. Not to sound like we're complaining, but uh, you know, the best you get, job in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I also get people oh. yeah, yeah. that think my art is easy, you know, because I have the simplified cartoon style. I understand that. That's fine. But they look at that and they go, oh, well, I can draw like that. So then they come to me thinking, here's some stuff I drew, you know, and it's, and it's not as good as, as right. mine. But in their head, they must – or maybe they're going for like more of like a Jim Lee style or something. And they think – This guy's going to be blown away by what I can do with right, lines. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm like – maybe I'm not as good as Jim Lee, but I'm better than this guy who's only – but, well, that's like the story that you were there where the, the guys who produced Superhero Squad were standing right in front of us. Oh, yeah. And the guy kept, like, pointing <laughs> at X-Babies. And he's like, could be worse. We could have been doing this. <laughs> and then he has to, like, the temerity to look at me like, I don't mean that as an insult. It's like, yeah, you kind of do. <laughs> You're saying. Could be worse. I could be you. I, I suppose the expression. I could be one of these idiots behind this table right here that I'm looking at. I suppose the expression, it could be worse, is not meant as an insult ever. <laughs> That's usually a very positive precursor to any statement. I'm just saying the thing that follows it could be worse is usually worse. Right. I think that's the nature of that expression. So you found it insulting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. On the flip side, aside from everybody being very nice, that's the norm. If the, if the, the through line is everybody's great, uh-huh. there are people that are above great. There are certain con, like, guests and appearance, like, people that show up. Give me an example. My example of watching you or my example in my own? Uh, either one because, like, I don't, I'm not sure. Well, watching you, I I get the okay, biggest here, I like it when <laughs> – I love it when kids – Finish my sentence. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Well, I, there's been a few times I've seen kids have actually dressed up like G-Man or Great Man, characters that I created. That's and, pretty good. And that's, that's always awesome to see. Or – when uh, people come over and just tell me how much they like the work, that's always awesome. They, when the kid comes over to the table with their parents and drag their parents over and convince their parents, like, yeah, I want this. It's always, especially when they choose G-Man over Mini Marvels. Right. Well, that's, that's I actually want to talk about the other day. Whenever a little kid comes up to you and is super excited and is obviously has read the stuff. Yeah. Like when a kid asks for Elephant Steve or Billy Demon uh-huh. or something, it's like, okay, this kid, or Kid Thunder, like, all right. It's nice. Kid. It's always nice when it's obvious they've read this stuff because, like, some people will come over and they'll, like, they'll gush and they'll give compliments. Like, I really like that one cartoon where and they'll, they'll, they'll describe the scene completely yeah. wrong from what it actually is. And, you know, and it's fine. I, I get it. I, I misremember things all the time, so I don't call them out or anything. But. So now to the thing you were just saying, I've seen it happen a bunch of times. Parent comes up with the kid. Uh-huh. You have your books out. Right. There's the Mini Marvels, which has recognizable characters on it. There's G-Man. G-Man is the cheaper book. Yes. Uh, the kid a, wants G-Man. G-Man's a $10 book. Mini Marvels is a $20 book. The kid is excited for G-Man, is interested in flipping through it, 
the parent, I've heard it, I've seen it, I sit right next to you, is always like, what about this? What about this? Yes. I say about three or four times. The kid's it, clearly not, doesn't care. Yes. It'll often, often <laughs> see that scenario where the kid is often even given the option, well, which one do you want? Which one do you want? And the kid will point to one of the G-Man books, and then the parent will talk them out of it and talk them into getting the mini Marvel. Now, do you think that comes from a parent saying, these are characters I recognize that they're good for kids? Or do you think it's a parent saying, I like this stuff. I don't know what this other – like, is it is it a recognition thing? I think it's a recognition thing because I think that there's no reason for you to think that one is suitable for kids and one isn't because they look exactly the same. And they, and they are both exactly the same as far as suitability. I think it's just wanting to indoctrinate your kid to like the same characters that you already like and being happy that parent can read Captain America right now, which is you – know, super hot everybody thinks it's awesome but it's all super serious and mature sure an adult and not necessarily appropriate for a young kid or or necessarily something that they'll identify with because it's like so serious and real. So, but you got me drawing captain america and now my kid will like captain america and he'll know how awesome captain america is you one think day. It, you think at this point when they start reading it and he's not quote unquote captain america superhero captain america he's more funny like, your Captain America is not fighting bad guys. Yeah, but, well, I think it's just, it, it comes down to that whole, like, we've discussed this before, where people, we've heard people say this over and over. There needs to be more material out there for kids. There needs right. to be more comics out there for kids. We talk about this all the time. But what they actually mean is Marvel and DC need to do more right. stuff for kids because there's so much material out there for kids that people are averse to because it doesn't have, it's not Spider-Man. They want Spider-Man, Batman. Yeah. And look, it's not to say they're wrong. It would be great. It would they, be great. Yeah, but it's just not happening. But it's 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 frustrating to have somebody come to my table, and and this happens a lot too. And they gush about many Marvels. Yeah, I'm very flattered. Uh, I'm very happy that that they enjoy the work that I've done with many Marvels, and and you know, and then they'll say things like, "Ah, oh, there really needs to be more stuff. There needs to be more many Marvels. There really needs to be more stuff like this." And then I'll say, "Well, G-Man is." Exactly like this. It's the exact same thing. I'm going to say they're it's gone. I'm going to say it's better. I appreciate that. No problem. But you know, it's exactly like many Marvels, just with different characters. And usually, the person is just gushing about how much they loved it and how much they want more stuff like it. To this day, that guy has never tried G-Man. I've never successfully transitioned. It's usually That's amazing. It's, it's usually be a way. Well, I do often get people come by and they're a lot more open-minded and they'll you know, say, oh, oh, it's Gmail. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll give this a shot. Or, ki- or some parents that come by with their kids, to the kid, they're all, all the same because they're all new to them. Right. They haven't grown an attachment to one versus the other. And often I'll sell that way because the kid takes to it because it looks The kid great. points to the one and the parent will actually say, okay, yes. Right. Instead of arguing. Well, that's, that's the case where the $10 price difference helps some parents aren't attached to the mini marvels or marvel characters and they'll just go with the cheaper one so now, so it's it's always yeah. going to be this i mean again without the mini marvels they probably wouldn't be able to sell True. any g-man books and it's it's the newer stuff it's your personal stuff right i happen to i actually do think it's better just because the stories are there's more going on it's it's almost like we were talking about with larson with with dragon where he can make these sweeping changes and do dramatic things right. You can do that with Gmail. Right, I have, I have like the possibilities are a lot greater. The restrictions are fewer. Uh, and I, like the last book I did was just five issues straight of the same story. Whereas many Marvels, you get chunks of like five pages, right. four pages. But you're now you're telling hundred plus page stories. Is it a, is that an area you're more comfortable in? Do you sometimes wish you could go back to doing? Where where are you when you're working? 
I like I like the longer stuff better. That that feels more satisfying creatively. It feels Is it easier. It feels easier in the sense that there's not the restriction of three panels to, to do your sure. setup and punchline. So you can you can get to know characters a lot more over the span of like several pages. You don't have to think like, well, th- I got to start over for this next three panels in a row. Nobody's going to know who this guy is, right? And, you know, so you, you can explore a lot more. You can develop characters a lot more, and then you can set up humorous situations a lot more creatively. Like they don't always have to be a punchline. It could be something that happens in the middle of a page. It could be situational. It could, there's there's so many different ways to develop the humor there that aren't necessarily that are very difficult to do in a comic strip. A comic strip, like a standard newspaper comic strip, is probably one of the most challenging things to do because the restrictions are so enormous. So that's why I would say it's easier to do something longer, like a full comic, a full miniseries, a full story, just by virtue of space. Right. It's not necessarily easier in the, the sense that, like, well, now you. You gotta fill all that space. It's a, it's a different, yeah. It's a different. It's a structure. At least the last time around was like it was kind of new territory for me, and I wasn't sure how it was gonna work out. But I did like the way it worked out, and it's also kind of like taking an idea, like a comic strip. The old trick I used to do was you do a, you do a comic strip, and then you realize I got a little bit more to say on this. I realize oh, there's a few more jokes in here centered around the same topic, so I can see if I can connect them, or if I can organize it in a way that it's four strips instead of one. So a full comic is kind of that way, except that I don't necessarily have to time it out. So that there's a there's a punchline after every three panels, and if I feel like doing that, nothing's stopping me from going back to that to experiment for a few pages here and there. Now speaking of experiment and pacing and all that, there was a period where you and Jacob had devised a, a six panel page, the modular six panel page, we'll call it. Right? It was six. It was actually twelve. Twelve panels per page. Yeah. All right, so it was, this, it was. Let me see if I could explain this to people listening. You and Jacob had devised this system where it was all the panels were square. They were they were they were pretty close to square. Yeah, and there was you said twelve on a page. Right, and it was and you were developing stories that could be done as single panel pages over the course of twenty some pages or twelve pages tell a story or five six panel pages whatever the math was. Well, I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more clear yeah. with my explanation of the exact same thing. Okay, but. Uh, because I thought it was fascinating. Well, at the time, I was doing comic bits as a backup comic strip in Savage Dragon, which was basically you know bullpen bits, but with the G-Man. The G-Man, right. That's kind of where G-Man was first published. A and title so, you were never happy with, comic bits. And I don't disagree with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. But anyway, bullpen bits was a bad title, too. Except that it was on the bullpen bulletins page. But nobody remembers it. They always butcher it when they, they go back well, to it. Because Mini-Marvels is just better. It's a great title. <laughs> yes. Back to comic bits. Yeah. So Larson was giving me full page to do comic strips. So for a while, I was just exploring. The, I was using the whole page. I wasn't necessarily like doing four three-panel strips. Right. But Jacob and I decided to do a crossover where G-Man and Jacob's character Skullboy meet. And for whatever reason, the pacing turned into we were doing four three-panel comic strips. Okay. With the notion that we didn't necessarily have to have a punch at every every third one because it was like a full page. It just needed to end it. But... It just, it just seemed to be a comfortable way for us to work together. So you, we wound up 12 panels on the page. Uh, we did this. The first one was actually two, two issues in a row, so that we had two pages of 12 panels. Actually, it was 11 panels because the first one was the title panel. But we decided to just then turn that into a mini-comic, which was very easy to do because each panel was the exact identical size and shape as, as the next. So we had basically one panel per mini-comic page. So that was basically... We weren't necessarily setting out to do to devise a mini-comic format to begin with. It just worked out that way. 
And then I, I was actually comfortable working in that 12-panel page, and I, I continued doing that for a while. And then... But it was actually kind of, whether it was accidental or not, was sort of a pretty genius thing because you were showing me that you could modify the page into four-panel pages on an 8 by 8 like a like a picture book. Yeah. Or – and now I was actually talking to – Oh, that was a little bit different. That was uh, the second Mini Marvels one-shot where I think they actually specifically – might have done this with the the first one as well. I was I was thinking in terms of like the the twelve by twelve picture books that if I constructed the comic page the right way. That's um, what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, modular. yeah, yeah. That had nothing to. Yeah, this was before the Jake, stuff Jacob and I were doing. That's but, yeah. what I was trying to explain before. Okay, okay. I thought well, I thought you were talking about the mini comic stuff. Well, yeah, you eventually took the. But that's what I'm saying. It was modular in that you could take whatever however many, I think it was six panels on the page, uh-huh. and you could turn it into a four panel page that was square. Right, and then the bottom two panels. Moved up to the next page. Would would join the next two panels of the next page. Right. And yeah. it was, so we're basically cutting the, each page into uh, two-thirds. Right. And it still worked. Everything still read and yeah, it was yeah. smooth sailing. And then you could take that and make single each single panel its own page, and it still worked. Well, not with, not with the, the original. The original one I did was the Mini Marvels comics, intending for them to be usable in a square, square, in a square page book. format. Right. So I didn't. All I was worried about was the, the two-thirds page division. Like each four panels yeah. working. Yeah. So then I was talking to Jason Howard. We were talking about digital comics, e- e-readers and that sort of thing. And he was saying, he's like, yeah, well, I'm trying to think if there's a way to develop, like a, a you, way you could design a comic page that you could then turn it into a comic you could read on a phone without having to manipulate right. or do like guided view or anything. And I'm like, Chris came up with it. Like he did it. Because in theory, that comic you did could be broken up and – would read clean on a on a handheld yeah device yeah yeah I don't know it's just kind of awesome it's yeah it's, it's it was fun stuff to experiment with I mean but obviously not enough that you're gonna because it's there's a whole level of thinking there where you're laying things there's out. a lot of things but then there's also there's restrictions that come along with it and I don't I, w- I don't like that like oh I can't tell this sto- this great story like sometimes I want to tell a classic comic book story it's like a full issue. And I don't want to have to restrict myself to like, well, make sure every single panel is this big, the same dimension, and, it, and it's it's uh, well, yeah, you cut out, it'll take the fun out of it, and, and you'll be left with a lesser story than you originally envisioned. It just to fit the format of a phone doesn't. No, I don't disagree. Yeah, I am of, of late have been of the mind of comics aren't designed for phones. Right, you read a but page, if you want to, if you, if you decide like, hey, I'm going to do a phone comic, that's a different story. Yeah, then you're, yeah. you're you're approaching it that way. But I don't, I don't want to necessarily sabotage my current effort for a full comic. To, and if you're structuring yourself to the exact same panel, even Watchmen, while it was a nine-panel grid, had a splash page every now and again. Uh-huh. Steve Ditko did well, – he did nine panels a lot. But he changed it up. Right. splashes and things yeah, like yeah. that, which if you're, if you're creating a very specific structure – Yeah, I think – I just know. thought it was interesting that you were, without even trying or knowing you were ahead of the curve – Kind of ahead of the curve with yeah, the modular. Yeah, but, but again, we were, we were at the same time. We were we were basically working on comic strip right. format to begin with. So, and the, the comic strip format is one that's very. And this this goes back to like the, how it developed in the first place. The old comic strips was that they were supposed to be utility things. Like you could just you could plug them in and out of anywhere because they would fit anywhere. You could Peanuts was shopped around originally. I don't know if you know this, but the the initial format was it's always going to be four panels. Right. equal size so that when they sold it to the newspaper they said well here's the selling them. point you can stack it vertically you can run it horizontally or you can go square to on two oh, by yeah, two yeah. okay sure and that was how that was their original selling point on the strip because you know it wasn't strong enough to sell sure. it on 
based on the material itself. But what is? Right, yeah. right. When you did your first G-Man book, you were showing me the credits page. It was very specifically you had written, written, penciled, inked, lettered, colored. Like you listed every discipline uh-huh. by Chris Russo. Right. And I sort of got on you. It's like, really? You're going to list every yeah. – you're going to list them all? Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, man. Yep. And and your thing was people don't realize that it's the one guy doing it. Right. And I want to sort of talk about how you literally – aside from, you know, your brother helps you flat color sometimes or whatever the case – you do everything uh-huh. to the point where you, you do the production, which is setting up the book to go to a printer. Right. And is that a thing where going back to sort of the fascination you had early on with image and them doing their own thing, like is that just a through line with you that, that you're like, it can be done, I'm going to do it all? Or is it a case of too many cooks spoil the broth, so I'm going to be the only cook on this thing? It's a little bit of all that stuff, but mostly from the beginning it was like when you're trying to break in, like we know people that are like, okay, yeah, I'm working on a book with my buddy. And then like one of them is going to flake out and then they're going to have nothing. So I, I always felt like, okay, I got to learn how to do this all by myself so that I don't have to rely on somebody who's eventually going to flake out. Or if they're really awesome, will leave me for like a paid job. So I felt like my chances of getting any kind of work in any capacity were improved if I could do, you know, one-stop shop. Right. If I could do it all myself. And that's essentially the, the traditional comic strip cartoonist. They write it and they draw it and they color it for their Sunday funnies, you know, back when they used, they used to have that stuff. Right, but then they would send physical board to the syndicate or whatever, and then right. they would get everything set up for print. Like you right, were literally right. going into InDesign well, that and goes, building. Yeah, well, that, that goes back to like uh, when I got hired at Marvel, my job was in the production department. Right. So my job literally was preparing all the comics for the printer. So – I understood that end of it, and I right. understood what needed to be done. So I was like, okay, well, there's one less thing for me to have to rely on somebody else, you know, one less favor to get somebody else to do right. for me in my efforts to finally get a book done. So once I was in the position of actually getting books published, I, you know, I thought, well, all right, I know how to do all the stuff that they need me to do, so let me save the time on the production end, and I'll, I'll generate the PDFs that the printer uses too. Now, how many people that you've worked with so far actually – like I feel like you almost would get resistance from from people because they have their production team. They well, the Marvel stuff I did. Yeah, I was on staff at the time for the first two one shots. So I was like, all right, I might as well be the guy that sets up the books sure. that, that are that are coming in. With with them, it got to the point where it was like, well, I, I gave them my files and I said, if you do it this way, it'll print better. And they didn't always listen to me. Sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. So, right. But you know, it's work for hire. That's how it goes. Yeah, because I know you have your standards for what you want to think to look like printed. You're noticing details that I don't know if anyone yeah. – Well, my, my attitude is that we are in this age of technology and computers where we can make it perfect. So why, why make it not perfect? Like, like I see certain systems in place where they're deliberately not doing it as nicely as they could. They, and it wouldn't – it would take basically the click of a couple of buttons to make things look the way I think that they should. So, like, I might be – the things I complain about might yeah. be, like, you know, when you look at them, like, look at this one versus this one. It might be something that to you looks minor or you yeah. can't really pick up on it. But when I know that the difference between one of those versus the other is clicking one box in a computer <laughs> sure, program, sure. then it, it, I find that inexcusable. So do you think that comes from a, this is the way we do it, this is the way we've done it, or do you think it comes from just not understanding? I, I think it comes from an assembly line process right. and what is the most efficient way to get something that sure. looks high quality. Because it is – I mean, essentially, you have to get books out every week, every month, and right. it, to, it never stops. Right, and you have – like like let's say at Marvel, you have a, a production staff that's 
highly uh, transient. You know, you get the young kids come in and they get the jobs where, you know, hey, they're working at Marvel. They, they learn what they're supposed to do. They're told specifically everything has to be exactly this way. And then they, they stay there for a couple of years and then they move on because it's not a really high-paying job or they have higher aspirations. There's only so much mobility. Exactly. So you need a system that's easy to show to somebody that has no experience and, and tell them what to do. But the way I – so my system of doing it is a lot more complicated than that. Again, that's why I like to step in and say – all right, I'll, I'll put the file together because I know that so-and-so isn't, isn't going to understand what I'm saying or they're not going to want to take the extra time to do what I'm asking. And, and I understand that. That's fine. But you still run into the situation where you can send a high-res file to a printer and they might be pressed for time and they want to output their film. Not their film, down. but they want to output put their, their files faster. And they'll just automatically res everything down And during, at some point during their output process, which kind of undermines everything you've done to begin with. Now that doesn't that affects like Photoshop files. It doesn't affect vector files like Illustrator. Most of your computer lettering isn't done in Illustrator, so your eyes are not going to notice image degradation in your artwork, you know, because you're kind of focused on reading the words. But you do notice it, like you've you've seen. I've seen a low res art with like high res lettering in the whole page, just sort of. Well, what's worse, like an FPO image. Yeah, but you all you've also seen lettering that's in the Photoshop layer that's like all fuzzy. Yeah. And that jumps out like crazy, sure. and it just looks embarrassing like a mistake. Now, I'm at risk of that happening because my lettering is all in the Photoshop files. So you keep a nice so high-res line I have art. a system where the line art is treated separately from the color art, and it gets output. It reads the file differently than it would a color file. How's the experience been different at Image where it's creator-owned, and you know they have a production team over there? Which I was also a part of. Which you were also a part of. So it was very interesting because at Marvel, everything was so regimented and structured and basically everything is like formatted exactly the same way. They have assembly the, every, line. Yeah their, yeah, their system is, their machine is like, everything is uniform. They right. control everything that happens. Like Everything is scanned at a certain... It used to be, it used to be everything, they scan everything in-house or now that they don't, like they can tell their artists, like scan at this, you know, right. ask for their files a certain way. So a certain that, DPI like, at a certain size. Yeah, so, so everything... just get plugged in. Everything becomes uniform. But at Image, you're working with all manner of independent creators from all over the place of various levels of education as far as what the technology can technical do or skill and their technical sure. skills. So they're all doing the best they can, but as much as you tell them, this is, this is the way you should prepare your files, they would always come in differently. So there, it was impossible to get a uniformity as far as the way the files were delivered. So as a production guy, you had to understand, well, they don't all need to be uniform. Like we can print something at 600 DPI, we can print something at 400 DPI. We can print an EPS file. We can print a TIFF file. We can print, you know, there's a lot more leeway in what is acceptable to send to the printer. So you roll with it. So it takes a lot more technical skill to be in production at Image than it does to, at Marvel. So having been at Image and realizing, oh, okay, this is ultimately comes down to this. I can I can generate my PDFs a certain way, or I can just, you know, if they still like to have all the files in house, you know, they want a certain level of control. Right, and because they, you know, everything reflects on them as well. Sure, but I know all of them, and I know what they're asking for. I know what they want, and I'm comfortable giving the files to Jonathan Chan or Drew Gill, and, and I know that they're going to turn out the way I need them to. But you're still sending a PDF to them, um, or you're not? You're not doing all the InDesign stuff on your own. I am. Yeah. I am doing the InDesign stuff. Yeah, as far as I know, the last. Well, okay, the the interiors of the last book were all. My PDFs, but again, Jonathan looked them over. Sure, made sure that they're you know. And he's a guy you can trust that he's going to know what yeah. to do with it. And when you do something like Guardian gags, what you just send them a piece but, of art. Well, let me get oh, back okay. to this. Sorry. 
the cover we had some problems with because like the spine width issues, we know they were, they were different or whatever. So Jonathan had to change those. Like once he got my files, he had to change it. And I was like, all right, I know that he knows what he's doing. I used to work with him. And just as an explanation briefly, paper stock affected the thickness of the book, which affected the spine width. Right. Yeah. yeah. The spine width is going to be determined by your number of pages. Right. And, and the then stock and the and thickness the, of the paper. Yeah, yeah. But the way I look at it is like, well, I took a huge amount of the workload off of his shoulders by just getting all the interiors ready. So now for my book, all he had to worry about was like one file. So it's nice to have that kind of relationship or understand what I'm doing. Of course. If I didn't know what I was doing, I would just send a whole bunch of pile of files to Jonathan and then I would wait and then uh, magically an awesome book would be printed sure. because it's he knows how to roll with pretty much anything. On that level, it's sort of ignorance is bliss kind of a thing, but you get what you get. It kind of is. Like, yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't realize – a lot of people that get books published through Image don't realize exactly how lucky they are to have the people team, working sure. on them. You know, it's, and things go wrong here and there. You of know? course. And, and you get hypersensitive because, like, this is your baby. This is your project. It might be, in some cases, somebody's first book, you know. And, but I would rather have that production team working on my stuff than the Marvel production team. Right. Not by virtue of the fact that, like, somebody's better than somebody else. The systems else. are different. The systems are different. And the level of technical know-how at, at Image is far higher and greater. When you scan at what, 12? Well, my line art, I aim for 1,200. Yeah, so. From. <laughs> but, but you have to understand that there is not a color, like a 1,200 DPI color file going to a printer. Now, there, there are different systems, though. Like, you might have something calibrate. Like, as I've seen artwork that prints at 300 DPI, that looks fantastic. And that's got to be a case of them being perfectly calibrated with the printer specs. Things like that can work, but generally speaking, you know, the higher your resolution, the better your, your image is going to be. Because but, you know, then let's say I have uh, – well, yes, about Guardian Gags. Yeah, so then Guardian Gags is a single page. Now, I know that – yeah. That goes in somebody else's book. Right. So I delivered that. Like, I just sent them a single Photoshop file of a resolution that I know they print all the rest of their pages okay. at. That one you just sort of tailored to that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. You didn't sweat it, it as much. the same way I did one of my own books. Okay, that's fair. Uh, because I know what the specs of all the rest of their pages are. I know. I know what they generally do. So in summation, you do everything yourself, and uh, everybody get out of your way. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Well, the other thing about having like the super high res twelve hundred DPI art is yeah. that if like if at some point they say, "Well, we need it in this format or this format," I can always go down. I can always come down to like whatever any other format from my super high top level format, and always conform to anything else. But you can't always you can't go from low up. quality to higher quality. Right. You can always get worse. It could be worse. The more you do something, yeah, the more I could be you. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. You know what? That's going to be the closer right there. That's really? Good. We're not yeah. going to talk about uh, – did, did we miss anything? I don't know. I don't know. This is fun. <laughs> Any other tales from the back rooms? I'm sure we've got a million. We, we should write these down because it's it's weird. The environmental cue, like, cues your memory up to sure. remember stuff. that, Like, when we're at a convention, it's easy to remember so I gotta other all, conventions. i got to bring everything with me? Yeah. Well, or we could just write those down. We could just set up mics on the tables yeah. and just record for 12 hours. <laughs> That'd be... People do it. Yeah, we're not going to do you that. You laugh, but people do it. I do laugh, and people do it. Chris G., as much as you do your comics all yourself, I couldn't do this alone. I thought of that 10 minutes you ago. Couldn't, you couldn't interview yourself? No, I could. I'll bet you could. I could. I'm not gonna. I'm not built for that. I'll interview you. Right, not today. We've been talking now for over two Tell hours. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you got started. Oh, brother. <laughs> Thank you.
we talked for another four hours after that. Chris totally interviewed me, like from the beginning to right now, where I was born to my recording this right now. No, that didn't happen. That's not true. But that was Chris G. Russo. And believe it or not, there was stuff we didn't get to. So he'll be back. Suffice it to say, it's inevitable. Chris Jerusso will return to the the stuff that the stuff said stage. That is, I will not be saying those three words in order like that again. Meanwhile, if you like this show and haven't already, please subscribe via iTunes or at stuffsaidshow.com, all one word, where you will find show notes, links to my guests' websites other things sometimes there's art up there you never know post a review on itunes especially positive reviews if you have negative reviews or constructive criticism you can email me directly at stuff said at gmail.com again that's all one word stuff said at gmail.com uh, you can send me nice messages too i'm, I'm all for positivity I'm a fan i am not on twitter sorry folks i know it blasphemes the internet to say that but it is true. But there's a website. And I have an email address. That's two very viable options on how you can get in touch with me. If you even wanted to get in touch with me. Speaking of getting in touch with people. Tell other people about the show. If you think you know somebody that might be interested in this kind of thing. Give them a heads up. As, in as much as I, I came to do this show as a thing that I thought was missing from the landscape... Uh, if people aren't listening to it, then uh, I was wrong. And I don't want to be wrong. That should do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Come back again for more Stuff Said. <laughs>